All right, so here's another example. Masudi. So apparently he tells us that Moses had an army uh, of 600,000 or more. And then Ibn Khaldun criticizes this report and says that Mas'udi forgets to take into consideration whether Egypt and Syria could possibly have held such a number of soldiers. He says every realm may have as large a militia as it can hold and support, but no more. This fact is attested by well-known customs and familiar conditions. So Ibn Khaldun is basically telling us what we know about how many soldiers a certain area of land can support tell us pretty definitively or show us definitively that this historical report must be false, that it would be impossible for Moses to have had 600,000 or more soldiers. Also, he goes on to say an army of that size cannot march or fight as a unit. The whole available territory would be too small and so forth. Uh, these are the conditions uh, which we know to be the case now, which actually will have applied in the past, and so we would know that that could not have happened in the past. And then he has this interesting statement. Yeah? The situation at the present day testifies to the correctness of the statement. The past resembles the future more than one drop of water another. So you know, we really are getting into a kind of a dilemma here, right? Because he has told us that the historian has to be aware of the changing conditions over history. And here he's told us that the past resembles the future more than one drop of water another. So it appears that there has to be, you know, one aspect are completely contingent and subject to change. And you have to be aware of the possibility of that change. And another aspect of the past, which resembles the future, more than one drop of water resembles another, so which is exactly the same. In this case, right, the fact that a certain area of land is only capable of sustaining a certain size of army, and the current present time, at a past time, uh, it would have been the same. That's interesting, I suppose, because one could imagine customs changing. So let's say if technology was different, so that a larger army could actually be sustained by the same territory than at another time. And he's basically telling us that, well, we can't sort of depend on divine intervention to make our do a critical history and decide what happened. If there was something from Revelation that reported a miraculous event, then that's one thing, and we would believe it because that's from Revelation. But if we were actually going to ascertain the veracity of historical reports, you know, we should actually deploy our understanding of nature on the basis of what we have experienced of its, you know, regular patterns, rather than assume that any kind of strange and miraculous thing can happen all the time. But that's really a, a, opens up another can of worms, a uh, different question. I have a chapter I wrote on this. If you're interested in that question, I can send you that. So he says that a hidden pitfall in historiography is disregard for the fact that conditions within the nations and races change with the change of periods and the passing of days. This is a sore affliction and is deeply hidden, becoming noticeable only after a long time, so that rarely do more than a few individuals become aware of it. This is as follows. The condition of the world and of nations, their customs and sects, does not persist in the same form or in a constant manner. 
There are differences according to days and periods and changes from one condition to another. And this is the case with individuals, times, and cities. And in the same manner, it happens in connection with regions, districts, periods, and dynasties. So customs change over time. And here's the reason that he gives, which I think is, is, is pretty interesting. And this is more detail about how this can cause some misunderstanding in history. When politically ambitious men overcome the ruling dynasty and seize power, they inevitably have recourse to the customs of their predecessors and adopt most of them. At the same time, they do not neglect the customs of their own race. This leads to some discrepancies between the customs of the new ruling dynasty and the customs of the old race. Probably one of the things he's thinking about is when the Umayyads took over Damascus and they took over a place that was ruled previously by the Byzantines. And there were certain administrative practices and political institutions already in place. And they basically adopted a lot of those patterns of rule. And so there were some customs that were there, which they adopted, and which were very different from the, the Arab customs that they had brought with them. And so you had these discrepancies, and it leads to some, some changes, right? And it leads to some complication in the context when we're understanding an event, how it should be interpreted, given that we have two different contexts in which it might, for which it might mean different things, different types of people for which it might have a different meaning. So he says, the new power in turn is succeeded by another dynasty and customs are further mixed with those of the new dynasty. More discrepancies come in, and the discrepancy between the new dynasty and the first one is much greater than that between the second and the first one. Gradual increase in the degree of discrepancy continues. The eventual result is that an altogether distinct set of customs and intuitions and institutions, as long as there is this continued succession of different races to royal authority and government, discrepancies in customs and institutions will not cease to occur. Ibn Khaldun is saying, well, look, here I am, 14th century, uh, out here in the, the Maghreb, and, you know, what would it have been like 800 years ago, you know, when the Arab uh, dynasty, the Umayyads first began, for example, I have reports in his, from, from his historical reports from this time, but each time another uh, group of people took over or went far afield away from where they began, out here in West Africa, for example, after several centuries, each time, you know, they mixed with other people and they changed their way of life and changed their customs. So we have our own context and our own culture. And if we look at these historical reports, even though they're reports of the history of the same people, of uh, Arabs, right, and Muslims, but they can still have been quite different from us. And if we don't take into account that difference, we will totally misunderstand the event. Analogical reasoning and comparison are well known to human nature. Saying, okay, a certain event would have a certain significance, you know, in my time. Therefore, it should have, the, should have had the same significance in a past time. Or conversely, if a certain kind of event had a certain significance in a historical account, then that event should have the same significance now. That's analogical reasoning, right? A and B are similar to each other, so whatever is true about A should also be true about B. But that's not necessarily the case because A and B might have hidden differences. This is the case with you know two historical periods where A and B are like two different historical contexts in which you know maybe the same event might have happened. 
So uh, analogical reasoning is not safe from error. There are these hidden differences that we forget to look at or overlook. Together with forgetfulness and negligence, they sway man from his purpose and divert him from his goal. Often someone who has learned a good deal of past history remains unaware of the changes that conditions have undergone. Without a moment's hesitation, he applies his knowledge of the present to the historical information and measures the historical information by the things he has observed with his own eyes. Although the difference between the two is great, consequently he falls into an abyss of error. This may be illustrated by what their historians report concerning the circumstances of Al-Hajjaj. They say his father was a school teacher, but at the present time, teaching is a craft and serves to make a living. It is a far cry from the pride of group feeling, or asabiya, that he talks about all the time. Teachers are weak, indigent, and rootless. <laughs> yeah. Many weak professional men and artisans who work for a living aspire to positions for which they are not fit, but which they believe to be within their reach. They are misled by their desires, a rope which often slips from their hands and precipitates them into the abyss of ruinous perdition. They do not realize that what they desire is impossible for men like them to attain. So basically he's saying, well, here we have this fact that Al-Hajjaj was a teacher, or his father was a school teacher. Uh, makes people think that if they were a teacher, they could be a great leader also. But they don't realize that in that historical context, a teacher was something totally different than it is in their own historical context. And that that society was different, so that the nature of that society was such that, well, as he says, in those cases, the teachers were actually the Sahaba of the Prophet who went out and you know were establishing a new order and were basically the leaders of their people already. And so when people hear stories about teachers doing these great things, they think that since they're a teacher, they could do something like that too. Well, they're sadly mistaken because teachers don't really have the same meaning in their social context that they did in that different society. Uh, he says, when there is a general change of conditions, it is as if the entire creation had changed and the whole world had been altered as if it were a new and repeated creation, a world brought into existence anew. Therefore, there is need at this time that somebody should systematically set down the situation of the world among all regions and races, as well as the customs and the sectarian beliefs that have changed for their adherence. Doing for this age what al-Mas'udi did for his, this should be a model for historians to follow. So this is a very interesting statement. When there is a general change of conditions, it is as if the whole, entire creation had changed and the whole world had been altered. As if it were a new and repeated creation, the world brought into existence anew. And you see what he means, because basically the, the, the customs of a people, or what he calls the customs of a people, are what shape their perception of events. And the world which they understand and conceive is basically the perception of events. The world as they understand it is determined by how they perceive it. And if their customs actually of, of the culture shape and determine their perception of the world, then a change in the culture constitutes virtually a change in the whole world. As we saw, for example, a change in the scientific theory, uh, that's a really uh, poignant example because this is something that Ibn Khaldun uh, took to be 
the facts of existence, as he said, right? They're, they're constituting the explanation why people die when they go into the water and why fish die when they're brought out of the water, you know, having to do with the temperature of the lung and stuff like that, which is now obsolete. So the scientific theory ends up, you know, being something that changes. It becomes a custom of a culture which has changed, a historically contingent feature of his culture, which is now different, but which would definitely constitute a change in the very basic perception. I mean, he called it the facts of existence. So that means that from his perspective, what he considered to be the facts of existence actually changed. And the entire world, right, has changed. Yeah, so we have a new science as if we have a new, completely new world, which raises in the problem, right, about how then can we know that whatever principles or what he calls the yardstick of philosophy, our understanding of the facts of existence, uh, how do we know that they are actually the facts of existence and not just a feature of changing customs, so to speak? That's a question that's raised simply because of the fact that Ibn Khaldun has an aspiration here to be able to understand history from the perspective of philosophy, which is, it would seem to be the aspiration to understand history from a perspective which can somehow transcend the changing of customs and reach to a vantage point which is independent of that change and able to explain and ascertain why those customs change in the way they do on the basis of something uh, which is more fixed and, and certain. And we'll see that it really foreshadows some later developments in philosophy of history, a book called Historicism, the idea that when culture changes, it's as if the world changes. And the world uh, is the world as conceived through a specific historically contingent cultural shared view or conception of things. There seems some kind of, you know, ambiguity because on the one hand, he has a clear and definite aspiration to and reference to a non-contingent form of knowledge about history, something not changing when he talks about the yardstick of philosophy. But he's also quite aware of how, how fundamentally things can change in the world simply because of change in culture and custom. So our question is, is there a line that can be drawn between that and something which doesn't change? Some system or, uh, as he saw, some nature of the nature of civilization, you know, and the facts of existence that we can ascertain so we would know what kinds of possible changes could take place and why they would, no matter what other sort of different conditions might apply. The Enlightenment thinkers that we're going to see later in the in, in European history were attached more to the the idea that natural philosophy ascertains eternal and sort of objectively true facts that are independent of changing historical and cultural conditions. But the historicist is you use the term historicist to describe usually the, the type of viewpoint that sort of subsumes more under the the changing cultural conditions and cultural context so that a historicist would look at science all of science as actually a feature of culture which changes and is historically contingent so a historicist is someone who thinks that everything changes in the way that Michael Dune talks about here 
that when culture changes, it's as if the entire world had changed. Okay? But let's say the naturalist who considers there to be natural facts, which are eternal and can be ascertained. And we can know, for example, that in terms of those natural facts, the past resembles the future more than one drop of water in others. So we have two very different perspectives. And Ibn Khaldun seems to be combining insights on two sides. And it may be compatible because he has a, a way to tell us what kinds of things we can know are unchanging and what sorts of things we um, have to be aware of as being subject to radical change. I don't know how he would explain the, which sorts of things can be considered to be permanent and which are human constructs or at least parts of the human existence which are subject to change like custom and so forth. 